Um, welcome to this week's Guido Talks. Thank you all for your such lovely comments about last week's. Uh, this week we're going to dive right back into discussing our favourite top stories throughout the week. It's been busy despite lockdown. Uh, today I'm joined by Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines and Hi. reporter Christian Calgi. I'm Tom Harwood and you're watching Guido Talks, the weekly roundup of all things Guido. Let's kick off this week with that panorama disaster from Monday. What happened, Christian? Well, we were treated to another uh, landmark panorama investigation uh, this week on uh, PPE provision to hospitals. And as per usual, we're always very keen to uh, see that uh, viewers who of course fund uh, the BBC through the license fee have all the available information about who is giving them what information. Uh, so we went through uh, the interviewees one by one and surely enough uh, discovered that every single one of the health professionals based here in Britain that were interviewed were left-wing Labour activists and it caused quite a storm. Uh, we had uh, Sonia Adesera, who really took the crown, uh, being a former Labour uh, candidate and uh, who applied to be the Labour candidate in Uxbridge and has been in Corbyn videos and sat on platforms with Corbyn and uh, our friend uh, Pfizer Shaheen. Uh, and uh, Nurse Libby Nolan, who was a union uh, Unison Union steward and has attended Corbyn rallies and also Dr uh, Ariel Eno who is a member of Docs Not Cops and wants free migrant NHS access and uh, is also fairly anti-Israel. So it was a real smorgasbord of left-wing activists that uh, uh, Panorama went to for their information. And it's remarkable that they went to this panoply of left-wing activists when there hasn't been um, a lack of criticism about the government strategy from the right. It's very easy to find voices on the right who've been saying that, for example, the speed of the testing rollout was too slow in this country. Public Health England has had problems with centralisation. There are lots of voices that are saying that, and yet Panorama seemed to go to none of them. Um, one of the reasons that might behind that was a was an interesting thing we found uh, in a follow-up story on this and this was one of the people that Panorama consulted to produce the program was a trade union organizer and self-described communist by the name of Nigel Flanagan. Now I spent days going back and forwards with the BBC press office trying to work out if Panorama had actually consulted with this man this self-described communist uh, when producing the documentary and on the third day finally they admitted that they had. Now this is extraordinary that they didn't number one address it in their initial statement describing uh, the controversy and trying to bail themselves out from the criticism around the programme and it took three days to discover that this guy was actually involved. It's quite extraordinary that the BBC had engaged in almost a sort of cover-up after the broadcast of this programme that is clearly just so biased. And then as the week went on, we had uh, even more stories along this theme, moving from Panorama to uh, Newsnight, where the day after 
I was quite amused to see the BBC had just switched to anonymous interviewers, so we could no longer check who was actually providing this information. We ran it as a small observation, uh, and later that evening I was treated to a bombardment of private messages by uh, a journalist involved with the programme. Uh, I think uh, people might be able to guess who. Um, and obviously my concern in, in running the piece and wanting to know uh, whether he had uh, interviewed Labour activists uh, was just to double check that we didn't have a Labour activist interviewing Labour activists. <laughs> the BBC guidelines are pretty clear about this. It says that wherever it's relevant, and I think if there's a political criticism of a policy, it is relevant to outline people's political background. And if all these people... Uh, sorry, there's a, there's a dog who wants to get involved here. Um, are, are, uh, are, are from one background, and it does seem to be a particularly left-wing Labour background, we should know. And making it anonymous is just uh, out of the question. I mean, the idea that they're, they're not... They're not super grasses and they're not going to be assassinated for speaking out on issues. It's ridiculous. And lots of people within the NHS who aren't from a, a political background are speaking out. So I, I, think, I think the BBC needs to widen its net and stick to its guidelines. If you're going to be uh, a partisan and on a show like uh, Question Time, I think it's perfectly legitimate to be uh, partisan, you're challenged, and there's other, other voices on there. The BBC should stick to its guidelines, which says that their uh, political affiliations should be revealed. Yeah. And at this point, there really is no excuse anymore to be inviting Professor, Professor John Ashton onto the mainstream media. There's be, we know everything about the guy, we've put out more stuff about him this morning, uh, this afternoon rather, um, laying into the Tories back in, as far back as 2012, and obviously these uh, really concerning uh, anti-Semitic tweets which, which uh, were unearthed by the Jewish Chronicle this week. Uh, there's no excuse anymore. He has to be dropped as a, as a go-to commentator on this. To be fair, Sky did, in one interview, point out that he was uh, a Labour party activists and he wasn't very happy about it but i thought oh you know we, we should give credit where credit's due well done sky yeah. absolutely it's really worth watching that video actually we uh, put it up uh, a couple of weeks ago he's really not happy about people learning that he was a labor member for 53 years um but staying on the topic of uh, failings within the media. This week we had an enormous piece of news and that's that Aaron Banks, uh, one of the people behind the Leave.eu campaign, was cleared of wrongdoing. He actually defeated the Electoral Commission in a legal case, not that it was covered very widely. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Paul? Well, if you remember back to 2016, it seems bizarre that we're talking about something four years ago. There was a lot of controversy uh, about whether Aaron Banks was taking rubles from Putin and was uh, where was the money coming from? And there was eight million and the Electoral Commission said there was a case to answer. And I think the case to answer was really the madness of some parts of the media saying, you know, where's it coming from? He's, his wife's Russian and he's been to the Russian embassy. Anyway, they referred it on 
on, on no grounds, no evidence to the National Crime Agency. The National Crime Agency, who have the power and the ability to look into bank accounts and track the flow of money, said, there's nothing here, there's nothing illegal, forget it. And they said that, I think, a couple of years ago. And uh, the, the Electoral Commission just wouldn't budge. Anyway, Aaron Banks went to the High Court. Uh, in the end, the Electoral Commission, who refused to uh, uh, disclose evidence, and I'd watched that space on the disclosed evidence, decided that they would agree to a consent order. And by mutual consent, they withdrew the allegations and Aaron's happy off in New Zealand. Now, uh, some top spin in some places that it's a score draw. And in fact, the Electoral Commission's press office called me and said, uh, Aaron Banks didn't win in the High Court because we didn't go to High Court because it was an agreed consent order. And I said to her, I said to the press officer, I said, in the High Court, it says at the top of the order in the High Court of Justice. When somebody wins in the High Court, it's not a geographical location, it's a legal uh, a result. You know, it's just basic. Anyway, that aside, um, a good result for Aaron. And I, it was a bit surprising that there was barely any coverage. In fact, I think the Daily Mirror covered it and said it was a score draw. Uh, and uh, everybody else kind of ignored it. It's quite curious how the people who were the loudest about all of the allegations when they were popping up in the first place and all of these wackier and wackier conspiracy theories about who was behind it, where the money came from, whether it was Putin himself, everything like that. All of the people who tweeted and tweeted and, and wrote and wrote and broadcast and broadcast about that, leading items, days and days, endless streams of coverage. Where are they now and what are they saying? There is absolute dearth of silence. It's dreadful and people need to do better really when they've clearly made such errors, such life-changing and potentially life-destroying errors in some cases. Uh, they need to make amends. But moving on, uh, this week we have asked you, the watchers, the readers, the listeners, to ask us some questions about some stories this week. And we have had a whole bunch of questions in, so thank you so much for sending them in to our Facebook page. Um, and we're going to turn to the first one now from Nicholas Hall. So let's have a listen to what Nicholas has to say. Good afternoon. In light of the Panorama Hatchet job this week, how are we going to make the BBC more accountable and more balanced? Thank you. Good Thanks, question. Nicholas. <laughs> yeah, Paul, do you want to take that? Good question. Uh, I think when you have a situation where the BBC already has guidelines that it is not adhering to, one questions whether any new rules will do any good. I th think, for a start, the DCMS Select Committee should have them in and ask them to explain themselves on this and other issues. And uh, I think it's a structural thing. You know, they get the license fee, and they are not accountable. They have universal income, whereas no one would be bothered if you didn't have to pay to watch it, whether you didn't watch it or not. And I think that's the, uh, the, the question we have. We're not so worried about whether newspapers are biased. We just don't buy that newspaper, do we? 
Absolutely. That has to be the long term answer here. Licence fee reform. I mean, the way that the UK is lagging behind just about every other country in the world, having in effect a, a tax funding a national broadcaster that is so dominant in market share, it is really worrying. And we talk about how worried we are about local newspapers, for example. Well, they're being driven out of business by local BBC departments providing everything up tax funded, driving out any kind of competition. It's really bad for journalism for things to continue as they are. But moving on to our next question, uh, we have one from Fiona Lafferty. And, and this is, let's listen to it now. Does Guido think that Boris will delay Brexit because of what's happening with COVID-19? Now, this is a really interesting question because Back in the start of this shutdown time, um, I thought that it might be delayed, that talks would be stalled, that stuff wouldn't happen. But actually what we've seen in the last couple of weeks specifically is those rounds are going ahead and going ahead quite productively. Listening to what people have been saying who are involved in those talks, there are over 100 British negotiators doing simultaneous negotiations uh, down the line um, across video conferencing as if those are in life real uh, negotiations and they're sticking pretty much to the timetable that was originally set out. So in that way Covid might not be the big roadblock that at first I thought it might be. So I, I think that actually just the sheer determination of the government to uh, get this FTA over and done with by the end of the year will drive this through and in some ways coronavirus concentrates the minds of the people in the European Union thinking, hang on, we don't want to play games with this. We don't want to play politics th with this. Let's sign this and get it done. And the British government is playing quite a clever game here because the whole British play is taking bits and bobs that are in other FTAs that the EU has signed with countries like Japan and Canada and saying, look, you've signed up to this with Canada. Why don't you sign up to this with us? So the UK is not asking for anything new or special. It's all based on precedent. And by that metric, it should be possible to get it all done by the end of the year. And the government's certainly determined to do that. Yeah, I think I think that from my sense of the people in there, including some people used to be working for us, uh, <laughs> that they are pretty determined to get this done one way or another. And if it can't mm. be done, walk away. Absolutely. And that's the other crucial point. Uh, in the last parliament, a majority of Conservative MPs had originally voted Remain. But now um, it was on the site this week. For the first time, a majority of Conservative MPs actually voted leave. There's going to be pressure from Parliament in some ways to take a stronger stance in that negotiation. There's going to be no um, messing around in Parliament with an 80-seat majority. So walking away is a real option and the government is not going to not do that if the EU start playing games as well. Yeah, we're going to get Brexit done. It's also no worries, like voting, of course, that actually less time is being lost in the negotiations than you might think because the negotiations are ongoing and quite seriously so as we saw I think last week with quite um, a fruity statement from the government on, on uh, where the issues are and uh, that they're still being worked through um, but I think as we saw from Boris prior to the 2019 election whether the negotiations happen or not he's pretty 
good at uh, sticking to a deadline if he uh, wants. And he said that we're leaving by the end of the year. And uh, I think we've got to believe him based on past precedent on this. That's right. It's, it's Australia or Canada. Um, so let's go on to our next question. Um, and this is from Chris Carter. Uh, so let's play that now. Do you think Cummings really did push Sage for an earlier lockdown and that's he we have to thank, if thank is the right word, um, for the timing at least of the lockdown? Enjoying everyone getting their knickers in a twist about the contradictory sides of that story. The coverage of this in the Sunday newspapers has been quite amusing in some ways. First of all, there were revelations. In fact, the Sunday Times first to say that he was uh, attending Sage a couple of months ago, yeah, I, I think, in February. Within, a, within another piece. Yeah, nobody knows. It was on page nine or whatever. And then and then a few weeks, a few months later, The Guardian splashes Cummings attends Sage. Outrage. And they, they, they've obviously been giving the line that the government was too slow. It's Cummings' fault. They're obsessed with one advisor, as usual. It's a bit of a soap opera. Um, they, that he was, he was uh, uh, herd immunity, had ideas, you know, and it, it was just that. Now, it turns out that he actually was the one possibly questioning the scientists at Sage saying, should we move quicker? Uh, you know, should we uh, clamp down? So one way or another, it sounds like Cummings, who is obviously the Prime Minister's ears and eyes, was doing his job, you know, and, and I think yeah. we should not worry about process and worry about outcomes. And right, what the, what the Guardian piece was saying is that he's on SAGE, what the government is saying that he attends SAGE or some SAGE meetings, and that's a cr crucial difference. Being on a committee versus attending one, I think is a... Uh, uh, is a piece that we need to uh, keep an eye on. But, but, personally, but crucially... Personally, I wouldn't mind either way. I, I mean, I think it's legitimate for an elected government to, uh, you know, be involved in the decision-making process at all levels. Yeah, I would yeah you've got to understand what, what the scientists are saying and you've got to be able to question them and challenge them and push them in certain areas. And actually, looking at Dominic Cummings' blog from many years back, it really corroborates with the whole lockdown thing. He's written about pandemics before, and it makes sense. The sort of circles that he moves in uh, are those that were pushing for a stronger lockdown. So all of the conspiracy theories from the left-wing journalists saying that he was somehow this great sage of herd immunity as a strategy. Uh, number one, the government saying that that's never been their strategy. That's always been a byproduct of something. A degree of herd immunity will build up in any event. That's what uh, Sir Patrick Vallance said, that this whole conspiracy theory uh, went off of initially. But actually Dominic Cummings was, by all accounts, and I haven't heard much to the contrary of this actually, was all, by all accounts pushing for a more stringent lockdown earlier. And that's left a certain lot of left-wing journalists in a bit of a quandary in terms of who do they criticise more? This, this reminds me a bit, returning to the Aaron Banks story, because some of the media vilify people so unnecessarily, and Banks and Cummings have both received this insane caricature by the likes of Channel 4 and The Guardian of these evil 
plotters and Machiavellian types scheming away to destroy British democracy. And uh, once again, their conspiracies have been a huge embarrassment to them when they're disproved and uh, undermined so easily, uh, subsequent to them, you know, bragging about how brilliant these scoops are. Well, I think that that's just about all that we have time for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Thank you to Paul and Christian for being here again. And we'll see you all next week.